Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host and Fine Woodworking Editor, Tom McKenna, and with me this episode are Executive Art Director, Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. Special Projects Editor, Matt Kenny. Hello, everyone. Uh, web producer, Ben Strano, is sitting way, way far away for some reason. Hello. And Jeff Rose uh, is with us still, and he's manning the video gear and trying to keep us on time and respectful. Hey, Jeff. He's trying to be quiet, too. <laughs> Uh, before we get started, I uh, want to let people know that Fine Woodworking Live 2017 is almost sold out. It's crazy. Oh, well, <laughs> There's like 20, wow. 10, uh, I think 20 spots left right now. Um, the event takes place April 21st to the 23rd at the Southbridge Hotel and Conference Center in Southbridge, Massachusetts. Uh, but you have to hurry to register before it is too late. Um, one other thing, for those who have registered, don't forget to sign up for the Hardwood Derby. That's going to be a race that's uh, going to be a blast. Uh, we're, we're sort of getting worried because we don't have that many entrants so far. So we're going to get Ben to do a little uh, promotional work for us. Yeah. I think we need to up the ante in terms of prizes. I agree. What is the prize? I think it's 500 bucks. Wow. No, <laughs> it's a thousand <laughs> easily. A thousand. You're, you're, you're Ben's intern for a week. <laughs> That's the prize. Hey. No, we're we're working on prizes, but uh, you know, for us to get prizes, we got to show that there's going to be uh, some people racing. Here's the here's, here's the prize. You you get to pick either breakfast with Mike or a late afternoon nap with Mike. <laughs> <laughs> it comes with snuggle boots. It comes with snuggle boots. What the hell are snuggle boots? <laughs> All right, let's get to the questions yeah. before it's too late. Let's do that. <laughs> this one comes from Matt. Um, this is kind of long, but Matt and his wife are moving to Romania for the year, and he says, I cannot take my machines with me, so I'll use the time to learn more about hand tools. If you had up to $1,000 to spend on hand tools, what would you recommend? And, and Matt does have, uh, he's got a set of chisels. Uh, he wants to know whether you should get a honing guide. He's got a marking gauge, measuring tools and squares, uh, a block plane. Um, so he's kind of looking for what to get, yeah. for, you know, in a $1,000 budget. Mm. Do you want to start, Mike, or would you like me to start? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think he also w was talking about, he was sort of kind of a, a machine guy with the yes. hand tools, but he's sort of switching over to kind of an all-hand tool proposition once he moves. So um, I uh, actually, for, it was our first ever handwork department. I wrote an article on, it started out as 10, and it ended up being like the 12 essential hand tools. I think that's a good place to start. It's basically for, you know, all marketing measuring Um service prep and truing joinery. And I think anything beyond that, then you're getting into tools where you're trying to do things with hand tools that one might do with machines in terms of ripping, milling, and yeah. all that, that good kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but the one of the questions is if you are asking the question what tools you need, um, it possibly points to the fact that um, – you're maybe not up on why you should have them and what you're going to be doing with them. And right. so um, I think Matt said he was from the Boston area and wasn't leaving till this summer. So I would recommend see if you can take, you know, like a little um, either hand tool weekend class at a local school. 
Um, see if you can't go somewhere and have someone put some hand tools in your hand and sort of take you through the, the basic paces of what you're going to be doing with these things. I think that's going to give you a much better idea of sort of why you need them and what to get and how to sort of pad out the collection that you've already got. Yeah, figure out what do you want. Yeah. What, do, what do you want to make? Right. That's like uh, I often see this question online. It's more common like when people actually use an internet forums, which I, I guess they still do, but I, I don't. But um, you would see a lot of times, go, what tool should I get next? And it was invariably came from someone who has did not have much experience woodworking. And I'm not saying Matt is in this boat, but um, and it's the reason you don't know the answer to that question is because you don't know what it is you want to do. Yeah. So you sort of have to figure out that question first. When you're in Romania, what do you want to do? Do you want to make little boxes? Do you just want to practice your joinery? Or carve spoons. Or carve spoons. Yeah. You know, it's a, the, the answer to the question is going to depend on what it is you want to make. Yeah. yeah. And I would suspect you'd want to investigate, if possible, your lumber supply, your lumber source. Because if you can go to a lumber yard and buy material and have them mill it for you, you know, even though yes. it's going to cost you money, it, it's going to, you know, maybe then you don't need uh, planes to mill material. Right. Might be, might be cheaper in Romania. Yeah. Where they have the mice running the machine. Or, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Tom, we're going to get letters about that. Um, so, yeah, you got to know what you want to do, and that'll tell you what to get yep. to some extent. So I think I didn't want to leave people hanging. And what are the twelve essential hand tools? Oh yeah, I'm we were to all done. I know, I know you were. Um, okay, I'll try to. It was uh, dovetail saw, coping saw, spoke shape, block plane, smoothing plane, scraper, set of chisels. I cheated there. Marking gauge, bevel gauge, and lemon zester. Lemon zester was one of lemon them. zester. Partridge yeah. in a tree. <laughs> and one potato more thing. peeler. Uh, marking knife. Did I say that? Knife. I don't know. Number two pencil? Number two pencil? Blue tape roll? Yeah, no, I kind of left that stuff off. Again, I was kind of cheating the number. didn't want to get too up there. Mm -hmm. The 350 essential hand tools. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we all strive for. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on to question number two. This one comes from Dean. Shoulder plane. Sorry. I got the big guy. Big guy. Yeah. Good call. I like the medium one. This one comes from Dean, uh, and Dean says, what are your recommendations for a modest arsenal of hammers and mallets for woodworkers? That's a good question. Go ahead, Matt. What you got? All right. I, I was going to bring him in. I totally forgot. Yeah, me too. I did too. Man. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, so I have, that I use on a regular basis, um, I have a small dead blow mallet. Like It's like a little tiny thing with a little round it's probably only weighs like 20 pounds. No, it's a small one. Like yep. These are the ones they sell at Woodcraft. The black plastic. Yeah, the black yep. ones. So I have the smallest size of that. Yep. And I think – and I have like a medium or maybe the larger size of that as well because I think they come in three different sizes. And I have those two dead blow mallets and I use them regularly. Um, I use the small one for knocking together joinery and uh, the bigger one I use for knocking apart joinery. <laughs> That's too tight. Um, I have a, uh, you need to have a, I would think you need to have a small hammer that is suitable for knocking in small brad nails or something like that. So, um, I would have that. 
and uh, then I have a um, you want to have some kind of wooden mallet I think uh, as well so that you can strike chisels that are not that do not have a metal ring on them or something uh, so I would have that um, and I do have that and then what I find I'm using a lot of now is a. I think you need. I, I think you need to have just for the cool factor is a Japanese hammer. And okay. mine has a little man wearing like a speedo on it, and he's hammering with a rock. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> um, so I would do that. And the other thing that I would have, which I have, uh, and I don't really ever use it anymore, but it was the first thing I bought as a mallet was a um, rawhide mallet. The kind they take rawhide and they roll Rolling, it up yeah. and, and then they soak it in some kind of hardening gunk and so those are I like those too because uh, those also are they're hard but they're, they're you know um, you just have to be careful with them because they're even though they're hard they're kind of soft but they're not so soft that they will not indent wood especially soft woods and because it has that spiral on the end from where the rawhide's rolled up it can leave sort of that impression oh, okay. on wood but I guess that's all I have. You do not need a framing hammer. What? You do not need even like a, a normal-sized hammer, I don't think. Um, I do have one. I've I didn't got, say I didn't have one. I just said you don't need one. I've got both. <laughs> a framing hammer? Yeah, but you use it in woodworking? Like a 23-ounce framing hammer? I used my 28-ounce framing hammer to, uh, to build my workbench. Yeah, I mean, but I but I, re- I don't really use it in in woodworking unless it, I'm trying to destroy something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what they're but, good for destroying yeah. things or framing. I, I use a, a regular, you know, I don't know, like a, I don't know what a, you know, claw hammer for uh, just a basic Stanley for driving in pegs because it gives me that little sound when it's kind of fully fully bedded. Mm-hmm. But you know, then I've got a wooden mallet. I used to have a carver's mallet, but. I don't know what happened to it. I think my son took it and was building Lego houses or something with it and never came back. I like a heavy – I don't own one, but I like a really heavy carver's mallet because all the weight is right there sort of right. in the palm mm-hmm. of your hand and you can just do a very controlled but forceful tap with it. No, I'd like to get what Matt had mentioned he's, that he has is a small kind of attack hammer mm-hmm. you know, for, for driving in small brads, but um, – just my wooden mallet and the other stuff I have works fine. And I do have a dead blow, a small dead blow. I wish I got – I need to get a bigger one because that yeah. little one is good for I have the big one projects. But that, the, the big one I like for a little more heft. Yeah. I don't have a wooden mallet. I used to have a round one. Um, but I just use a Japanese hammer for my chisels. I strike everything with the hammer now. Um, I do have a claw hammer for things like when I'm – using like a center punch or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to use my Japanese hammer on that for some reason. And then I have, it's either a two or three pound sledge just with a short little hammer. I use, I mean, short handle. I use that when I'm driving a stock through a dowel plate mm-hmm. because the added mass, it drives the dowel through with less hits and I get, it stays straighter and mm-hmm. less splitting and chattering. I, that that. Stuff. I was yeah. just making some dowels and I, <clears throat> I was using my framing hammer for that actually now that I think of it. Um, and it wasn't, still wasn't heavy enough. I should use mm-hmm. my sledge for that. But Yeah, I, um, I do. And when it comes to a small hammer, so what is normally I believe called a tack hammer is it'll be really small and slight and the head is sort of rectangular. 
Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, it'll be for hitting, and on the other hand, it's sort of for starting tax. It'll have sometimes it's a little split or something. Yeah, have a split in it, so it holds the nail, and you can sort of. But that's not what I would get. They make um, <clears throat> small claw hammers, and uh, that's what I use for driving in, like mm-hmm. little uh, cut nails and brads and things like that. And it actually, it's nice if you can find something with a bit of a domed. <clears throat> Uh, striking face hmm. because a, f- a flat striking face when you start to get it almost driven all the way in the flat striking face will uh, it can dent the wood whereas if it's domed and you hit it properly you can sort of drive it all the way in without the hammer ever actually hitting the surface right yeah. that's cool so I just have a 23 gauge pin nailer that's my tiny hammer <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I mean I have one of those yeah. too but you know sometimes Mike you want to use nice nails or something yeah. right I can't They're remember decorative. the last time I actually drove in a nail. Oh, no, I oh, did. Japanese toolboxes. Yes, I did. Yeah, see, I man. used my claw hammer for that. Did you? Yes. Oh, I'm down with nails. need yeah. a claw hammer. Yeah. Okay, never mind. You have to grind the, the nail heads square instead of round, though. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my God. Please do not encourage people. And coat it with wax. Yeah, put some mutton tallow on it. <laughs> Rub the mutton tallow gently over the nail. <laughs> Refinish the handle, you know. Um, the next question is from Daniel, and Daniel writes, I'm building a desk for my wife. The base with drawers will be walnut, and I'm trying to determine the top. I had originally thought to use eight quarter bobinga, but now that it's on Sites Appendix 2, it's become harder to find and more pricey. So should I use a different dark hardwood or use walnut for the top and think about other ways to add contrast? I think we all like the latter option. Yeah. Uh, Boombinga, huh? Boombinga. Boombinga. Isn't that a song? Boombinga. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you, you're very fortunate that Boombinga has been put on the CITES, too. CITES. Yeah, it's pronounced CITES, yeah. You do not want to use Boombinga. For this tabletop, because he says it's a maple base, right? No, no walnut. walnut. Can we can we just be honest here? <laughs> can we be honest? It'd be I'm just I, just give uh, space blunt. for for Ben to d- you know, d- edit things d- out. out. Boobinga and walnut are not going to look good together. It's not a good match. It's not a good pairing. They, um, yeah, they, we talked about they age completely differently. Yes, yeah, and uh, it's not going to be a good pairing. And um, also, I think the larger issue is that on a desk where you have a tabletop and a base, you have roughly the same amount of visual material. Surface area. Surface yeah. area in the right. table as you do in the base. And if you use different woods for each one of those, what you end up with is these two different uh, colors sort of competing with each other equally. Neither one of them has predominance over the other. Yeah. And when you use contrasting or complementary woods, you have to make a decision. At least this is, how, this is how I approach it. You have to make a decision, and one of them has to take prominence in the piece. And so you kind of – I sort of think about it in like people talk about primary wood, secondary wood, and usually that's as far as they go. But you could talk about a tertiary wood. Mm-hmm. That, that's often meant in terms of, well, secondary wood is used for internal stuff that's not seen. Right. But when I think about it, I think about in terms of the woods that you use 
their colors and how they apply to the design overall. And you have to, I think you have to choose a wood to be the primary wood and it has to be the predominant color in the piece that you're making. And then if you're going to use a secondary wood, then it has to be significantly less amount of it so that it is clearly identifiable visually as a secondary or a, a complementary wood. And as M- Mike pointed out yesterday when we were talking about this, the more figured that piece of w- – that secondary wood is, the less of it you should have. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if I said that. Um, <laughs> I think one Someone thing said I, I said was, was that the, the closer that those areas start to equal each other mm-hmm. and that you have large areas of different woods – the lower the contrast those two woods should be True. to each other. Yes. And yeah, then I as agree. you get to yep. smaller details, you can really pop things really dark or, yes. or really light. Yeah. yeah. Um, like for walnut, for instance, if you do the entire base and drawer fronts from walnut, it's going to be really hard to get anything else to sort of ma- match or complement with just the top. But if you were to do something like, let's say you chose a wood, which is the same grain structure, but a different color, slightly lighter. So let's say you went with a butternut top a walnut base, but then you went with the butternut drawer fronts too. So now you're bringing that wood into, into the, the base, base and now that lighter yeah. butternut is the dominant color of, mm-hmm. of the desk. And now you have this dark walnut to sort of define sort of the frame and legs of the base. Yeah, I mean that was the, the another problem with what he's proposing is that you have this clear demarcation between the top and the base. Yeah. And there's nothing tying the two together. And if you were to say put Bubinga pools on the base with these walnut say there's walnut drawers, the bibing is just not, it's not going to stand out enough to, uh, against the walnut. So, yeah. um, yeah, I would, I mean, I don't, a good alternative would be to uh, use walnut for the top. Yeah. You could use yeah. figured walnut for the top. That would be a, that would be something that makes it different, but it's still tied together. You could use walnut with sapwood. I think as you suggested that yesterday, right? Right. Uh, as long as the sapwood's not too punky. Um, you could use walnut with sapwood. Um, I, I mean, there would be other things that you could do to introduce a second wood in terms of – I mean, you could introduce it through structure. Could so, also be beading, you know. Beading or – Beading around drawers or under the, you know, under the apron. Yeah. I mean, you could use but, a, right. pins, cock beading, yeah. like a pin joints. You could use the, the pegs. Yeah. So – yeah, it's one thing that we always talk about contrast, and you know, I think the mistake most people make is they they overdo it. And like Matt was describing, it there should be a process. And one of the things I've learned from visiting with guys like Garrett Hack and the way they talk about contrast is that they use it to guide the viewer's eye around the piece. Right. So they go mm-hmm. here, 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 and here, and then they kind of see the whole thing. So. Um, Garrett also, I think he was the author of the article on good, uh, good, good woods for contrast. Right. Was that the one that you worked yeah. on? No, I didn't do that article. I think you did it. I did. Wow. Yeah, with Garrett. I don't remember that but one. I think what where people get misled with is simply the fact that it says contrast, yeah. and so contrast is like it's like black and white. It's like maple and mm-hmm. what is the wood that people use all the time? Purple heart. Purple heart. Oh yes. my god. I wish Purple Heart was on the Sides Two Treaty. They would never <laughs> let that crap in this country again. It is ugly. Well, I, I think uh, a, a lot of folks get led astray. Like you go into a little uh, 
you know, crafts boutique and there's this little box and there's like 17 different, made from 17 different hardwoods. And there is this notion that a custom made furniture, one thing, you know, that sets it apart is the wood and the contrast and the variety of woods that you put in there. And I think a lot of us kind of go through that phase and I've been there. Um, I've tend to, I've gotten a little bit more subtle over time, I think. And Mm -hmm. in terms of colors, I mean, it isn't just the color of wood that you're contrasting. The other aspects of the wood would be the figure and also the grain structure. I don't think you want to change how all three variables, um, for instance, um, for white oak, um, has a really open grain structure. So if I wanted to go with a lighter wood, I wouldn't go with maple, which is really tight grain structure, but I could go with ash. Mm -hmm. And the same thing if I... um, if I was using, say, butternut, which is almost exactly the same tone as white oak, but it's a finer grain structure, I could go with like curly maple or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so think in terms of, of not just the color wood, but sort of the nature of the wood. What yeah. else is going and, on right. there? And how it's going to age. I mean, one, I think yeah, I, I made a little piece where I had, it was white oak, but I used spalted maple for the door. And, and when I built it, the contrast, you know, I thought it was really good. But what was great about it later is that the maple kind of aged more yellow or d- got darker yeah, right. and it, it actually, it almost matches. Like it, it's, it, it becomes, you know, a much more subtle contrast. Yeah. That's a good point. And you know, we often get the question, how do I keep the maple on my project? White, white. You don't. You don't. No. It's just sort it's of right. a, it's a temporary state. Um, it's just by the nature of the fact that this wood was recently milled. Yeah. So it's going to sort of age and go golden the way it wants to. And you can try to fight it as much as you can. But if you want it white, white, it's not going to be there, maybe unless you start to bleach something and get into color effects like that. Mm-hmm. So. so here's, I guess, because you, you said you got to think about more than the color. And I realized, and I said, oh, yeah, of course. Cause I, so I think about the color. I think about the the cut of the wood, you know, flat sawn, quarter sawn, riff sawn. I think about uh, the whether or not it's figured, and I think about the pore sizes when I'm choosing second a secondary or complementary wood, and then I also th- also think about the color of the growth ring lines, hmm. you know, and that's a way like that's I think white pine and cherry go really well together, and one of the reasons is. At least when it's riffs on, all of its riffs on, is that the the growth ring lines in white pine are often this nice sort of honey brown that goes really well with the sort of the earthy red of cherry. Yeah, very nice. And so, yeah, I mean, there's more. There's like at least four things right there to think about besides the color. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it drives me nuts when I see a box with seventy-two different. Woods and they're like 80, 84 of them are exotic. There's, oh my gosh, mm. exotic! I gotta leave now because <laughs> I'm in a state. Thinking, but just even thinking about it. Well, it's a perfect time to talk about uh, our smooth moves. Yeah. Why don't you uh, go first since you're steaming already? Yeah. Well, mine is a colossal smooth move of epic proportions. <laughs> um. So I was making these two tea boxes, and uh, make each one has three drawers, and they're identical. And I'm making them at the same time, and one of them I have to get done for this uh, exhibition of the 52 boxes that's going on right now. Right. And so I'm really kind of pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. And 
to speed things up, I decided to use a specially ground table saw blade to cut the dovetails on the tail sides. And it's not, I don't normally do it that way, but I knew that it, I would be able to do it much faster than if I did it any other way. So I did that and I cut all the tails for the front, no problem. But then I, I got to the back and I cut all the tails there. But the way I do the back of my drawer is that the drawer back is runs from just above the drawer bottom to the top of the drawer, right? Okay. And uh, so at the bottom of the drawer back, there is a half pin. Yes. And that half pin fits, in, fits into a half pin socket. And that has to be – that socket has to be right above the drawer bottom groove. Yes. Right? So I'm – cutting all this stuff and I realized, okay, I got to cut. That means that, that, that half pin socket, there's one side that's straight and that's the side that is against or abuts the, the drawer bottom groove. Yes. And I'm thinking, okay, well I got to cut that now. And I said, well, I'm just going to straighten out my tape, this, you know, put a rip blade on my table saw and straighten it out and, uh, make that cut. So I did that. And then I started and I cut all everything, I cut the uh, drawer backs. I cut the uh, you know the pins into them and everything, and I put it together. And I realized that I had mislocated that bottom half pin socket, so I was actually covering up the drawer bottom groove with the drawer back. <clears throat> this is we need forty two diagrams for this, but all right. Um, so basically, I couldn't use it because the drawer back was covering up the slot for the drawer bottom. Oh. So and if you cut it short, you'd have this open half. Pin socket. Yes. On the on your side. Right. Yeah. Just glue in a little half pin plug in there. A Um, contrasting plug. Yes, I I did. I I did a purple heart plug. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I thought about different ways to fix it. That idea occurred to me. Um, The idea of just cutting off the tails at the back and redoing them, but then my drawer was going to be you know quarter inch, three eighths of an inch shorter. Mm. And so in the end, what I did was just. Uh, start over. That's not a bad choice. Okay. Yeah, well, all right. So I start over. Fortunately, I had not cut the pin sockets into the drawer fronts, the half-blind pin sockets. So I went back and I recut all of these drawer sides and did it right. But the the tails on the front of the sides were different size than the tails were previously. Somehow I ended up with different size tails and so I knew, okay, I've got to go back and erase all these lines that I had transferred before and then retransfer the lines from the new drawer sides, and then I can go on. So I did that. And I went, I made, cut out all my pin sockets and my drawer fronts. And I started to assemble the drawers to see how well they fit. And I got to one and I completely botched it. And that drawer front had pin sockets that were way too big. For the pins that I, or for the tails that I had, Ouch. the tail sockets were way too big for the tails that I had. So I completely botched it. And at that, that point, I said, you know what? I'm just going to set this tea cabinet to the side. Yes. <laughs> and I'm going to finish this one for the show. And then I'm going to go back. And I had to remake. Fortunately, I, I, there were three drawer fronts, and I only had to remake the bottom two. Uh, and moved on. And once I did, it went fine. But it was a colossal. Just compounded stupidity wow. here. Late at night? Well, it was late at night. You've been I was working st- hard for a long time on all that stuff. Yeah. So it was the tail end of 
a lot of, you know, working in the shop and yeah. Well, on your drawer front thing, when you're marking and erasing and remarking, little blue tape on that ingrain. Oh my god! Yeah, the, Bam. yeah blue tape. Yeah, right there. It might have helped. I it might think, have. I think it. I think pretty sure it would have. Yeah. And on the back, that little half pin right at the drawer is a really cool thing. I gave on that up on that a long time ago, and I just make sure I have a full pin oriented just a little bit above where I'm going to slice that off. Yeah. And I keep my drawer back the exact same height as my sides, do all my dovetails. Then I rip my groove, raise the blade, and I basically rip through the back at that exact same fence setting at the table saw, and it just cuts the thing. And just because that pin is up a little bit, there's always wiggle room, and I don't have to nail that. Yeah, I know you do it that way. I just don't like the way it looks. I like the way it looks when I do Well, if you would stop <laughs> coming over to my house and opening up all the drawers and taking them out of the case, you'd never see them. So, yes. Does he put them back in the right spot? That's the question. Mm-hmm. I always try to put them back in the wrong spot. I switch the contents around. He messes up the walnuts with the bird feathers with the seashells, and it's, it's a mess. <laughs> I can't imagine what he does to the tea box. <laughs> How about you, Mike? What's your uh, smoothie? Well... I don't have a big one, but I'm sort of living with two, and I just remedied one, and I Mike, have to remedy Mike, the no second. way to talk about your kids. <laughs> <laughs> what? You have two kids. Yeah. You said you had two mistakes that you're trying to remedy. I don't think that's what he said. Isn't that what he said? Ben. <laughs> that was obvious. <laughs> ben, yeah. I'm like, I'm not the only one that heard that. All right. I thought someone was tickling uh, Ben's feet. <laughs> I'll continue. Thanks. So, uh, get, us, get us moving quickly. Uh, so two smooth moves. Oh, that I'm cur- did I say I'm currently living with or something like you that? You did, Okay, yes. there you go. I got it. I'm yeah. there. That was funny. Um, <laughs> and both of these represent one of those things where you know you should do something about it, but uh, not right now because what I'm doing isn't big enough to do anything about it. So one of those is the fact that my dust collector is like way too full. And I switched over from the clear bags. And I just use the black contractor bags now for the thing. And that actually gives you a sense of if you push around, oh, it's really firm on this side all the way to the top. But if I kind of feel around on the other side, there's a little air gap there. It's soft. Oh, I can probably Get run this there. board through there before I have to change it. And I'm sure those chips are halfway up my my little cartridge filter by now. So uh, so I have to take care of that. The other one is on my joiner. I jointed a board that had a staple in it a while ago, and it left a really deep groove uh, in it. And it was off to one side, maybe only like two inches in from one end. So all the skinny stuff, I'm working around it, move the fence in, and sometimes I'll forget it. and say, oh, wait, I think, uh, yep, there's a the little groove notch. I have to move it. I was doing some wide boards today where you couldn't, um, you couldn't avoid it. And one thing I do, and I used to live with really dull joiner knives back in the day where I would always have little grooves on my stock. And I always keep a card scraper around to scrape down that groove after each pass. Because if you don't, you end up with a tapered cut because you never really cut that thing off. But the other thing that happens, and I think it happened with these boards, was that where the, the little nick is in the blade on the outfeed table, there's now sort of a raised ridge that is referencing your table and it's pulling that stock slightly out of flat as it goes through. And I think 
even though I scraped it down after each pass, I think I was actually putting a little wind in my stock just by the fact that this this um, nick was creating this raised ridge, mm-hmm. which was then throwing my um, stock on the outfeed side out of flat. So mm-hmm. one of those things, both of them are situations that I know we got to do something about and I just don't get around to doing it until all of a sudden you have a big mess on your hands one way or the other. So I did order new joiner and planer knives this morning. So I'm pretty proud of that. Awesome. Sweet. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you have one, Tom? Oh, I have a doozy. All right. hope it's worse than mine. If it's not, we'll just Ben. It's just, it's more embarrassing than anything else. But I am... I was working on some a door and a drawer pull, and and I just had a, a scrap of walnut that uh, I wanted to use for them, and I just started playing with with shapes because I didn't really know what what I wanted, so I just started playing. Finally, I had something that was coming together, and I and I finalized it, and it was a short scrap, probably about you know a heavy three eighths inch thick, and about between seven and eight inches long. And I figured I was just going to divide it up and, and cut the, the pulls to size based on how they looked as I was going. Right. So I had um, – I have a, a drawing. I don't know if I should, I should just hold it up or just show it to um, Ben or have him post it somehow. But there was a bridge between um, the the pull part, where you, the finger hold, and the base that would go – that I'm going to attach to the drawer front or the door. And so I figured I would just rip that off and then, you know, finish surfacing and shaping it and then cut the pull to size by hand. Um, So I took it to my table saw, which was mistake number one, because the piece wasn't long enough really to reach the the back end of the blade. And what I wasn't um, anticipating was the weakness of that thin shoulder bridge between the parts. And uh, I always use a push stick for these kinds of things. And unfortunately, my splitter was not available. Um, it had busted and I was kind of working without it. But I don't think it would have mattered because I don't think this piece would have reached the splitter, you know, in time. But what happened, I'm pushing it through and it felt wrong. Like I, as soon as I was setting up the table saw, I'm like, you know, I should just use the bandsaw. You know, it'll be easier. I should just use the bandsaw. But I was right there. I had the push stick in hand. I said, ah, what could happen? So I go through, and I'm about three quarters of the way through the cut, and I saw it coming. I could see the piece just, you know, rattling on the table, and I just stepped out of the way, and I got pushed it maybe a quarter inch more, and the, the piece just exploded and shot back. The offcut did. Okay. You know, glanced me on the side and hit the wall behind me and was so loud that my wife yelled down, are you okay? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, no harm, no foul, but it's one of those things. It's like, you know, it felt wrong and I still did it. And um, even though I was in firm control and I use a a tall push stick, it was fortunate that it was the off cut that that kicked back, but it ruined my my pull blank and I had to start from, from scratch. But next time it's folks, you know, if it feels right, if it feels wrong, rather, don't do it. Yeah. And for parts like that, I, I should have just went with my gut and did it on the bandsaw. And, yeah. But anyway, don't do that. Hey, uh, before we move on to the next question. All right. I want to take a drink. I got a little stat for you guys. All right. All right. 97% of all woodworkers under the age of 30 think that Tagua nut is a tropical disease. Punch. 
All right. Is that the ingredient uh, for <laughs> Nutella? It is. Oh, I like making Ben groan and shake his head. I think he's sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get back to, uh, to the questions. This one comes from Eric. And Eric says, I am new to the craft, and where I live, there isn't a retailer like Woodcraft within 400 miles. My best option for affordable hand tools right now is online, like eBay. How can I tell if I'm buying a piece of woodworking history or a piece of junk? That's a good question. He was referencing some Stanley hand planes in his uh, uh, uncut copy, but trying to figure out what's real, what's Memorex, and what's mm -hmm. fake. I don't think you want either a piece of woodworking history or a piece of junk. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, normally if you talk to like a really reputable uh, tool dealer, the first thing they ask, are you a collector or is this a user tool? And they'll, you'll save a lot of money and they'll give you a tool that you can sharpen and flatten the bottom without disturbing the patina, you know, mm -hmm. which some people really value if it sits up on a shelf. But, right. Um, patina um, is very important to shelf life. That's what you don't <laughs> understand, Mike. You don't understand the science of patina and shelf life. But uh, in terms of, of just like a regular Stanley plane, Matt, you had some a take on in terms of a vintage plane that you should be looking at. Yeah, I think it's fairly common. The common belief is that try to find something pre you know pre World War Two. Yeah, um, and. So that means you need to know a little bit of something about uh, what, um, the, what ra the rabbit sorry. hole that is Stanley Plane typology. <clears throat> Why do you say pre-World War II? Because uh, they were made better before World War II, and afterwards is when they started to uh, – It was more uh, uh, assembly line. Well, it, because of the increase moved, in housing probably. It, less – I mean I think that the, just the – they were not just they just weren't made as well yeah the idea that pre-world war ii you were making a living with these tools yeah and by the time you got to the 1950s they were going into a hobbyist garage so different market yeah. different price point yeah um so you could go to there's a website called uh stanley blood and gore i believe is what it's called or just blood and gore no, it's blood you, and gore if, if you um, google stanley blood and gore patrick's blood patrick's, and gore patrick's, patrick's. Blood and gore. It was patrick leach who is a tool uh, used tool dealer yeah. but you can go there and it'll tell you the things to look for to help you identify the what they call the uh, type number of the plane and so you want to get a type number that is prior to world war 2 i think and you'll be in pretty good shape and you can still, you know, it's fairly normal to say, okay, replace the blade because the blades were thin and you can get a slightly thicker replacement blade that will be less apt to chatter. And more importantly, you get up and running a lot faster. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the other thing, I mean, other than that, you're, it's, honestly, it's just a crapshoot because you're looking at photographs. Right. And on eBay, at least, you're looking at photographs. You're trusting that this person is selling you what they're showing you, yep. and that they're showing you everything that is either right or wrong about it. Uh, and you can get great bargains on eBay. Uh, you can also just absolutely waste money. Yeah. And uh, I would suggest, if possible, find there are people who have like through email will sell used vintage tools, old tools, and who are reputable and trustworthy. And um, there are also websites that do that. 
And there are also stores around the country that do that. And this guy says, I don't know where he is, but 400 miles from the local Woodcraft, he's probably like in Alberta, Canada or something, you know. Um, but, you know, in Maine, there's Liberty Tool and Whole City or Whole Tool Barn. Uh, there's a place in Pittsburgh, North Carolina, right above Roy Underhill's shop, uh, school. Um, and you can probably find places like that throughout the country where you can go and see things in person um, before you buy it. Yeah. yeah. And, and so on – maybe you can find a Stanley number four on eBay for, I don't know, like 35 bucks. Yeah. You don't know what you're getting. And if it's old, a lot of them are sort of Frankenstein. There are parts from different eras of planes mm-hmm. that may mm-hmm. work together and may not. So you go to a dealer for a nice old number four, and you're probably spending closer to probably like what, been like eighty bucks, something like nice that. One. Yeah, for I would I would expect to I think eighty dollars for a really nice vintage number four or five that all the parts are from the same era, and it's and I can be sure that there are no cracks in mm-hmm. the body that are welded or need to be welded. Um, that's in basic using condition with a little cleanup, maybe flattening the sole. I don't think that's, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's too much to pay. No, no. Um, and you're guaranteed a plane more likely to work really, really well right out of the box than maybe something that may or may not need a lot of work or may never actually perform the way you want it to. Right. Yeah. And when it comes to hand tools, I, I, I treat it sort of like when I go shoe shopping, I don't buy shoes online. <laughs> You know, I like to feel. You know, I like to f- make sure it feels good in my hand and that it's comfortable. And I, you know, some of those older you, Stanleys, you they hold don't. shoes in your hand. I do. Yeah, and I walk in them. I talk in them. I dance. Um, but it's you know that feeling the comfort and like you know, especially with a hand plane, that grip is so important and how the size of your hand in relation to the tool. It you know it it's, could be a decider of whether you use it or not. So I, I mean, I always like to get my hands on the tool before I buy it. Yeah, before I came to Connecticut, um, when, I, when I lived in South Carolina, it was also a place where there was just an absolute dearth of old tools, you know. And um, I bought some Stanleys on eBay, and I regret it to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I haven't had them for years. I just chucked them, you know, because they were just junk. And I mean, like one of them, I spent like ten hours trying to flatten the sole. It was just uh, I was an idiot. Why did I ever, you know? But um, it, when I was there, that's when I met, I or that's when I made the decision. It was just like either if I'm going to buy a used tool, I'm going to buy one that I can trust that's in very good shape and that I can use right away, right? Or I'm not going to buy a used tool. Yeah. You know, I'm going to buy a new one. And my preference now is to buy a new tool because you just can take it out of the box and use it. After you, yeah. you know, sharpen it. Yeah, and there are a lot of you know inexpensive good models around you know stanley makes some some good planes and chisels um so sometimes it could be a good option i i also have had marginal luck at garage sales or tag sales occasionally if you stop in sometimes you know people will buy a tool or it's been you know in their grandfather's garage and they're just looking to sell it and it could be a it could be a gem yeah, but, but that's those in those new are england. Hit. yeah that's new england that's trust new me. england that isn't california okay. yeah it's not the no? south <laughs> no. yeah it's not at that new england is very different compared to other places in the country where i've been because there's such a long history of furniture making yeah. in okay. in in other sense. industries where they used woodworking tools in the past where we had a fantastic a really good used tool place right in Waterbury. 
you know, which was like 15 minutes from my house. Yeah. So, um, yeah, New England is, is very unique in that regard, I think. Interesting. So, All right. Yeah. Well, let's move on to question number five. Now, hold on tight. It's going to be a long one. Oh, well, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Got the soundtrack, Ben. Do we have time <clears throat> for another statistic before we start? <laughs> no, never. <laughs> All right. Justin says, I bought a house last year that has a detached garage workshop and I bought some of the previous owner's machines, a 20-inch General International Planer, about 15 years old, and a Baxter Whitney table saw that has a 16-inch saw blade, and he thinks it's about 100 years old. Both are in good working condition. Uh, he needs to upgrade the table saw for some safety features, like a splitter, and needs to clean and tune up the fence and miter gauge. Um, and he's planning to, he'd like to add a segmented cutter head to the planer. So his question was, should I consider selling the machines and buying nice new machines instead that have the features I'm looking for or spend the time getting these machines updated? Um, Particularly with the table saw, I love the idea of having a very old, solid machine that has already stood the test of time. But in trying to be realistic, I don't think I want to inhibit myself from getting to work building furniture. And I'm a little bit concerned that these upgrades might take time, too much time. I don't know why I, I, I'd keep the things. I mean, <laughs> especially like he said, they're in good working condition. Yeah, the upgrades he's talking about should take you a day. Yeah, it's not that hard, I don't think. Um, it's mean, expensive. I mean, we were talking about the segmented cutter head. That's a different animal because that's a, that's a major price um, yeah, investment. You know, in, in changing knives on a 20-inch planer and getting them set on an old, you know, I that could be a hassle. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. not old, old. It's like 20 years old. It's 15. It's, yeah. So maybe it has jack it's screws in it or something. Yeah, but still, okay, so you get a cutter head for that. You're going to spend well over, I'm guessing, $1,000 for the cutter head. If you're going to put it in yourself, you kind of better know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. If you're not putting it in yourself, you're not going to spend another couple few hundred bucks to have someone put it in for you. And you can get... Like I think you can probably get like a grizzly 15-inch planer with a helical cutter head for like fifteen to seventeen hundred bucks, something like that. So if yeah. you sell this planer for a couple few hundred bucks, you're probably going to come out ahead of the game with a brand new planer with a segmented cutter head than keeping this old guy and putting something in. But yeah, the planer I'd want to see, but the. I mean, it's the same thing as like old machines are fantastic in terms of their heft and all that business, but they're hard to sell. They can't well, especially they can't be. a three phase motor. But yeah. I'm, I'm more thinking of dust collection. That table saw, it's cool looking though. I have to. I'm voting yes on keeping the keeping table, the table saw. saw. Yeah, I looked that up. And it's like, yeah. oh dang, yeah. Especially because it'd be a monster if you had to actually move it into your shop and wire it up. Mm-hmm. But if it's already there and you can turn it yeah. on and it works, I would check yeah. the arbor, make sure you know there isn't serious run out. Yeah, anything weird about it. But if it works, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, if both of these machines are working, you can get to work right now. Right. Yes. An update w- later. Yeah. Know. Whereas you know, if you replace them. You got to sell those machines, buy your new machines. You're not going to get to work today, right? You know. So, in terms of you, you just want to get to work, then just go out and get to work, right? Two different questions: Should I buy these two or should I keep these two? Well, yeah, different. Yes, answers to both. Keep. 
Unless you have a lot of friends. No, I wouldn't buy them if you didn't already own them. No, that's right. That's what you said. Yeah. 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 Next week we'll get another question. Like, there's this guy selling this old table saw on a 20 inch. You know, should we buy it? (laughs) We're like, no, you shouldn't buy it. (laughs) We know that guy. (laughs) Don't don't buy it. And this guy's gonna write back like, you jerks, you told me to sell it. (laughs) 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 Now you're telling these people not to buy it. Yeah, you should definitely sell this, but no one should buy them. Yeah. What, what Matt said. <laughs> All right, let's get to. Uh, uh, he bought them. Now we. Uh, you should have bought them. That's a good deal. He got a good deal on them. I'm sure. Well, it sounded they like came, it, with the it came with the house. Came with the house, and they work. Yeah, you know why they came with the house? Because the guy that used to own the house was smart enough to leave them in the house. Because yeah, who's going to want to move that? Right. <laughs> he was like, yeah. I'm not moving this table saw. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next question is from Jeff, and Jeff says, "I'm looking to purchase one of the Whiteside Ultimate Flesh Trim bits." But I can't decide on which version. I was looking at the one with the bearing on both sides, but it doesn't have the lo- that large of a cut height. I don't yeah. own one of these bits, but I think both of you guys do, right? Yep, I own one. Yeah. I started with the bit top and bottom. So, oh, this is really versatile. You can have the pattern top or bottom. It's all going to be good. But the cutter length is only about an inch and an eighth. So right. you're right. It's not... For a thicker stock, if you're doing legs out of eight quarter or inch and a half legs that you're shaping, it's not enough. So I've taken the bearing off the top on occasion and treated it like a, what would that be? That's a, a pattern, pattern bit. A pattern bit with the bearing just at the shank. Um, and then you can make a partial cut, raise it up so the bearing is now riding on the part that you just routed to continue routing. It's okay, but the blade geometry at the top it's flat. It doesn't cut quite as cleanly. It's not as nice as a true bit where the top is designed to cut and make rabbits yeah. and that kind of stuff. So um, I have since gone to the bearing just at the shank. I have a, a bit there. And so if I had a choice, I would buy just that one. That's the one I It's a bit longer too about. Um, I don't know that it is. I think it's the same. I think it's the same. I have the one with the bearing at the shank, the, the, the pattern bit. And uh, the reason I got that was because of it is a somewhat short cut length, and when it's you're always it seems like you're always going to get one or the other bearing in the way if you have something more than one and an eighth inch thick. Yeah. So I went with that, and um, the only thing I would caution you on this is something that I, I kind of freaks me out about any bit like that. Once you start to raise it up and raise it up, if the top of that bit is exposed above, because when you use that type of bit, your pattern's on the bottom and the workpiece is on the top. And so if you're raising it up, especially, I mean, especially think about if you have something that's thinner than an inch and an eighth and you got to get that bearing up to get the bearing on the pattern, that bit's going to be exposed and it's a big bit and it's a hungry bit, you know? So, you have to be very careful with how you design your routing templates or routing jigs, you know. Right. And I think you and I both do the same thing, Mike, in that we use Desteco clamps to hold the workpiece down. Yep. Desteco style clamps, we should say. And I use minor Harbor Freight style Desteco clamps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and I use the biggest ones I can possibly get. And I cut, I have some that have like these T handles oh, yeah. that hold down that to press down, and when you do that, they kind of stand up at ninety degrees, and that's then how I hold the jig. Right, those are your handles. Those are my handles, cool. 
And to keep your hands as far away yeah. from that bit as possible. Yeah. I mean, every rider bit's hungry, but that's yeah. a big honking bit. <laughs> Anytime I do any kind of table riding like that, pattern riding, I'm so careful to keep my hands so far away because yeah. the router table, probably out of all the machines in my shop, even though I just mentioned a kickback, that's the one machine that just, it, I mean, even though the kickback happens, the kickback happens fast on a railroad table. It's just like instantaneously a disaster. You it's know? it's like, not good. But so, like the reason you want a bit that has a bearing above and below the cutter is so that you can. Uh, and I used to do this all the time because I would get sort of straight or sheer cut bits like that, and you can route down one corner because you're always supposed to route down the hill right so right. you, you right. route down the hill and then you can just flip everything over and lower the bit and route down the other hill with the bearing now with on the, right. the yeah. templates on the top the bearings on the top right, right. so set. you're yep. using both bearings and you're not having to take the part out you're not having to flip the top yeah. the part over or anything get a clean cut to get a, yeah so because you do not want to route up a hill with a traditional style flush trim or pattern bit or combination. Right. Yeah, it's not going to end well for you. And you can certainly cheat a lot more with these white side bits. Yes. You can go up, you know, against the grain a little bit better. But I typically now, especially when I'm teaching and I really want to guard against the possibility of routing the wrong direction, I'll make, if I'm doing it like an arch, my template will just have the one half of the arch that you should be routing at that time. Mm-hmm. And so you'll clamp it in, you'll route half the workpiece, unclamp it, flip the workpiece, and continue on that same yeah. portion. But, yeah. uh, there's a lot to know about a router and feed direction Man. and grain direction just to kind of do it well. That is one of the harder learning curves, I think, in woodworking. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and you almost have to have that, I hate to say it, that sudden kickback or that jolt to kind of really – almost understand the danger yeah <laughs> it is, and it's gonna happen there's um, maybe nothing scarier than route you're stupid enough to route up a curve and you have that bit catch that grain yeah. it is it just, just i mean the force with which it moves the yeah. workpiece and the jig is and then your workpiece yeah. ends up looking like a feather board because yes. all that <laughs> grain is split yeah, yeah i mean that's i think that's the thing i mean the 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 table saw it's big and it seems dangerous almost but the router table it, you know, it's kind of small. It's got that little me. Yeah. But it packs a punch if you if you just hesitate or get stuck sometimes, and it just kicks the uh, the piece right back at you. I I can't imagine what it's like, Mike or Matt, to be teaching a course where you have students where you don't really know maybe their level of woodworking and they're well, stepping up to do some pattern wrapping. But but you know the right way to do it, and you know how to tell them to use yeah. this tool, and it's it's never been a problem. And the one thing I don't do but I really appreciate when I'm teaching and I really should do it at home is most of the schools will have little blade guards, which are nothing more than a piece of plexiglass that are rounded on one end and they're screwed to a block of wood that you can clamp to your fence and it just sits above the bit. Mm -hmm. And it's just this sort of physical barrier between your hand and that bit. And I think both psychologically and also physically it adds a little higher level of safety and, and takes the stress out of it. It's also a visual cue that, you know, you're getting too close yeah, I can remember my brother used to have a a car. It was a Buick Riviera, and um, it had a speed. You, know, you could adjust the. There was an alarm that you could set on the car, and if you went above that 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 needle on the speedometer, it would set off an alarm. Oh, and it was just sort of like you're going too fast. In the summer of 2015, I was teaching a course, and we were doing bow front cabinets, so there was a lot of pattern routing. 
and I had that I had the white side bit at the time, and so I showed the students what we were going to be doing, and then we all went back into the bench room, and I said, "Do not come out here and use this router table to do this if I am not with you," because they were all people who didn't simply didn't have enough experience to be doing that on their own, and. I'm back in the bench room with all these students and all of a sudden you hear the router table come on and the next thing you hear is a piece of wood hit a wall and I was like, who's not out here? Who's not in here? And I looked to see and I saw the person that was missing. I was like, oh my God, no, please. <laughs> so I just went out. I was expecting to see blood everywhere. Fortunately, she was not hurt. But um, it was scary. Yeah, it's, it is. Because even when you, you show them the right way, you tell them, you know, people still yeah. are people. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I never took a, a router table class. So what I, <clears throat> you know, I had the first time I ever used, you know, did pattern routing, I was basing on what I read. And so it's sort of like, yeah, that sounds really good. But once you start getting into that, you really feel the force of the bit. And I was still even careful to, you know, not try to take off too much material. But, you know, it is a scary thing. And sometimes if you don't think about, you know how you're moving. You can wind up getting stuck if your right. if your jig is too big, and you wind up if you don't move your fence out of the way completely. Yes, and you're and halfway you're like, through the cut. Oh, what yes. do I do now? Yeah. It's sort of like, do I let it go? Or you know, it's all <laughs> part of the scary part of woodworking. But if you're, you know, I know we probably need to move on because of time. But here's one thing about pattern routing that I figured out that works really well. So you put your workpiece in the pattern, and you trace the curve, and then you go and you cut it off at the bandsaw, right? Right. You can cut right up to that pencil line because that pencil line is completely in waste material. Yeah. And so what I now do whenever I do any powder routing is I try to leave only the pencil line because the less waste you have there, the more smoothly it's going to right. work. Yeah, so, that's a really good point. You, yeah. you get within an eighth of an inch of line, that's still a lot of material. Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah, just leave the pencil line because the pencil yeah. line's like maybe a 30-second, th- you know? So just leave that. That's all you got to have. And it's one pass, clean cut, yeah. and you're done. I use that Michael Fortune trick where I, I lay a board down, a piece of MDF flat on my bandsaw. There's a little shallow notch in it so mm-hmm. I can – you know, recess the blade into the notch so the edge of the board is sticking out maybe a sixteenth of an inch beyond the blade. And I just clamp my workpiece in um, the template, which is on the bottom, and I just run the template across that board yeah. while it's in there, and it automatically trims it to within a sixteenth of an inch. You leave it in there, you move right to the router table, uh, and now you're routing. Right, yeah. Very smart. Okay. Let's wrap it up with our all-time favorite furniture of all time for this week. Do you want to uh, hit us up, Mike? Yeah, this one is not from the magazine, which I don't know why it always has to be from the magazine. This is actually a, a piece that I saw on Instagram. It's by a maker named Bern Chanley who lives in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, that's a cool thing about Instagram is you just find a lot of makers and a lot of really cool things. And so uh, on an interview I, I saw with him, um, he said it was inspired by Shaker Furniture and such, which is really kind of cool because it's sort of like an Australian maybe filter on American shaker furniture. But I don't know what that has to do with anything, but the this piece is a chair that is definitely has its heritage in Windsor chair making. It's got the solid slab seat, the legs that come into it, the spindles and a um and a bent arm back to it. And just the lines on it are there's a very contemporary sensibility to the piece. It's really fresh and clean, but then it also resonates with that little part of your brain where you recognize traditional elements culturally, I think. So 
while a piece of furniture can be like like original, 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 like not referencing anything, it might leave you cold because you can't grasp onto it. Like you have no reference Doesn't to have it. Familiar, like, yeah, familiar it's almost like it. yeah, like um, you know, a song with no like melody or something like that. So I think for me, it's a really perfect combination of using traditional elements really, really well, but interpreting them in a really personal and contemporary way. And it's one of those things you look at it and you just say, wow, that's just absolutely beautiful. I think mm-hmm. every every piece of this is in the right place and, and considered. So yeah, it is a beautiful chair. Yep. I like his Instagram feed too. Yep. Yeah, follow him. How about you, Matt? It's my turn? Yeah, hit it. All right, what do we got? Are you going to show it, Ben? So my favorite piece of all time is actually this. I've loved this piece for a long time, well before I came to the magazine. From the Lord of the Rings. It is from the Lord of the Rings. This is uh, Galadriel's dressing mirror. Nice. Uh, from Lothlorien. Uh, <laughs> this is a mirror, a cheval mirror. By uh, designed by Charles Rennie Macintosh, I believe is how you pronounce his name. But Macintosh, everyone knows the Macintosh chair, right? Um, and it is in a home in Scotland. And what I like about it, one, it it's got a. I don't know if you would. I guess Macintosh is usually associated with arts and crafts furniture, yeah. but it's not American arts and crafts furniture. It's very sinuous and organic. So definitely it's, sort of an Art Nouveau. Art influence. Nouveau, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's he, all of his. A lot of his work has a very uh, heavy Art Nouveau influence. And what I like about it is the sinuous curves. Uh, I like how on each side you have this rep. You know these these paired. Pieces that are so it's not just one curve on each side, it's two curves with negative space between them. I love the little drawers uh, that get stashed in there. And I also just like the overall effect of this mirror in that room, which this entire room is white. Yeah. Everything is white. White on white, yes. White on white everywhere, except for these little hints of color, which, like in this photograph, you can see that the mirror has these little uh, lobes in it. And those are red. And if you look at the light above it, there's like purple little lobes in that mirror. And he has these just little splashes of color there and um, throughout the room as well in, this, to this, in the same way. And I mean, I guess, you know, for me, I like this piece. So I, I guess in a way this was really influential for me. I don't make furniture with that type of organic curvature anymore, which I started out like that way eight or nine, you know, nine or ten years ago. But um, certainly the use of color has is something that I still uh, yeah. use. So um, I still use color a lot. And I, just, I, I like the curves. I think it's beautiful. Um, it's not something you would see in a modern home. But, uh, you know, but it's still something. I, I just – I love the curves. I love the color. I love – uh, the red, you know, the, the you know the little uses of red there, and um, what year do you think this is built? Oh, I know this. I don't know if the I, 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 <clears throat> not off the top of my head. Hundred years or at least hundred years ago. Yeah. yeah. What's funny about that is that it looks like it was made by you know a Michael Fortune student or someone. You know, it looks like a modern very piece. contemporary I, I, sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. And what I like about this piece is what I really like about arts and crafts furniture in that in the U.S. When we think of arts and crafts, we sort of think of stickly, which is mm-hmm. really blocky, rectilinear, maybe with some curved corbels, but you know, a whole lot of white oak. But really, the arts and crafts movement was very 
just all over the map in terms of style, in terms of different work in different countries being made. And this is a perfect example of just how sort of strange and bizarre some of the the styles can get. And John Vinson wrote a book with Kevin Rodell a while back called – is it just like Arts and Crafts Furniture or something like mm-hmm. that? But it's really sort of like on beyond stickly. They touch on mm-hmm. it. And but they go and they really cover a lot of makers doing really idiosyncratic things. Right. It, it, it's almost like um, the article on Common Arts and Crafts where he took a yes a small sampling of those of those guys. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I do because Arts and Crafts is more. I guess you know we think of it as a style. Yeah. But it really wasn't a style. It was a. It was a. It's almost like a period. A cultural movement. Yeah, it's based more on the philosophy than it was a specific design style. Yeah, and it's really a philo- – actually, the philosophy of the arts and crafts movement is something that is becoming popular again today. Very timely. Yeah, yeah. just sort of reaction against at the time, you know, industrial revolution and, and factory-made things, getting back to handmade, which – Oh, that sounds familiar, you know, mm-hmm. with the whole maker movement and getting back to, you know, doing it yourself. Right. So, Yeah. Cool. Well, my um, all-time favorite furniture of all time for this week is I love this piece. a little cabinet made by um, a woman. I think she's still a student at the Center for Furniture Craftsmanship. And I go to school sites just to kind of look and see what, what folks are making. And they've got a great gallery up there and a great staff. Um, and it's a really great program. And I, I saw this cabinet and I thought, wow, that's really cool. I love the, the lightness of it. But I loved – Mike touched on something before where he said it's reminiscent of, of something. And this was reminiscent of that classic shaker peg Definitely. cabinet. Yeah. But she took it and kind of modernized it, thinned out the parts, added that beautiful herringbone um, ash door panel, mm-hmm. um, the little drawers. And it hangs on, on a cap on the, on the strip with the, the pegs and the pegs kind of project through the yeah. inside of the cabinet. I just yeah, I like the way such, she did the back on the inside. That's really cool. Yeah, it's such an elegant, elegant little piece. Um, yeah, and she's just a, a student at this school, but she's probably uh, up in Maine. Yep, yeah, she lives near Tim she, Rousseau now, I okay. believe. Um, and uh, I follow her on Instagram. She's yeah, been yeah, that's great what I was going to say. She's yeah. she's got an Instagram account. She also yeah. uh, her website is HeidiMartin.com, dot com, and Heidi is H H E I D E Martin. But yeah. uh, she does some really. If you go to her site, you'll see some of, some of her other work. She's does some really nice work with ch- uh, chairs and caning and mm-hmm. just really small, elegant, elegant pieces. It's um, it's good to see uh, that kind of work being done. Yeah, yeah. Instagram is an amazing resource to find n- uh, new fr- other furniture makers. I find most of my new designs from you s- other accounts. Yes, um, yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, I like it's got that. 100,000 sources. It, it, if they have less than 5,000 <laughs> followers, boom, I'm taking that. That's right. Just add some Kumiko to it, yes. and then it's a Pekovich original. <laughs> Is that wrong, Ben? Is that not good? Okay. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He just wants us to wrap this thing up. So um, let's do it. It's all for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Tune in again in two weeks for our next episode. Remember to send your questions and comments to shoptalk at taunton.com. And please spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on the web at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Finally, you can keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook, and you can look for all of us on Instagram as well. Thanks for listening, and have fun in the shop. 
Zero percent of all woodworkers find me funny. (laughs) (laughs) Staff members, at least. There's a Turner out there that's going to love that to get win that stat. So now you're bringing that wood into into the the base. Soft. Boom, 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 bingo, huh?